Please take your Bibles again and turn to the same passage that was read, Isaiah 55. And I'm just going to read the first five verses that were already read. <clears throat> Isaiah 55, 1 through 5. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Amen. Amen. Well, let's once again look to God and ask for his help as we come to his word in prayer tonight. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this part of the book of Isaiah and the message that it holds, the message of good news, of invitation to sinners. Help me to preach the gospel to sinners tonight. Open the eyes of sinners to hear it. And open the eyes and hearts of your people as well, that we might afresh rejoice in the everlasting gospel, the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hear us, for we ask these things all in his name. Amen. Amen. If you pay attention to what's going on in the world at all nowadays, you know that suicide is a big problem in our 21st century world. I can remember back in 2016 when I was preaching a series of messages. I actually think it might have been Sunday school messages, but we had had the Supreme Court Obergefell decision here in the United States in 2015, and I was preaching, teaching some lessons on what the Bible says about the sin of homosexuality. And I remember in my reading coming across statistics, many statistics about different items, but one of them was the extremely high rate of suicide among people who are involved in those kinds of sins of deviant immorality. I remember then just one year later, there was that mass shooting in Las Vegas, many of you would remember. And I preached one message one Sunday, I think, after that shooting. And I came across statistics again about mass shootings but also about gun deaths in general, which I know are high in this country compared to other parts of the world, but it struck me what a very high percentage of gun deaths in this country happen in suicides. Suicide is a much larger problem today than it was in 2016 when I preached that first series of messages or 2017, when I preached that one-off message. We've had COVID, we have fentanyl, and we have a greater pandemic than we had back then of moral confusion in our country and in our world. There are many fearful and hopeless people around us all the time. They are people who, in one sense, are thirsting, but never finding anything to satisfy their thirst. 
Perhaps, as you are sitting here today, or tonight in this building, you know what it's like to be thirsting, and yet feeling like there's no hope that you will ever find anything that will satisfy your thirst. It could be true whether you are young or old. It could be true whether you are rich or poor. It could be true whether you are straight or L or G or B or T or anything else you want to call yourself. Ultimately, if that's your case, your problem is a spiritual problem. It is a spiritual issue. Your pain is spiritual pain. And your longing is spiritual longing at its root. Your felt need is a great spiritual need. You may be a Christian sitting here and listening to what I say, and you say, well, I've, I've, I have drunk from that living well that Scripture speaks about. I don't have that problem. As I hear you talk to people who are not Christians, I'm a Christian and I believe in total depravity and I believe in the sovereignty of God. And you may say, people really don't hunger and thirst for God. You say, Romans 3 says that. No one is really looking for God. And I agree with you. It's true. But because it is true, there are Bible passages like the one that has been read here tonight, like Isaiah 55, which calls out to alert people to their condition and to call them to realize it and act accordingly. As we look at this passage tonight of Isaiah 55, we're just going to focus on the first five verses. I want to do it under a very simple uh, three-point outline the main person in this passage, the main thing, and then the main purpose of the passage. So first of all, the main person in the passage, and though he's not named here, the main person in the passage is Jesus Christ. We see that first of all because of the focus that we see in verses 3, 4, and 5 of Isaiah 55. So let's look at those verses they're telling us about Jesus Christ. Notice verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the Lord says. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. The focus of these verses is Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. Notice first in verse 3, there's a reference here to the covenant God made with David in the Old Testament. He was the second king of the nation of Israel. God made a covenant with him. Notice the last part of verse 3. It says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. So as God is saying he's going to make an everlasting covenant with his people. And it goes back to a covenant that he made with David, the sure mercies of David, something he promised to David. The passage there that it's referring to is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's verses 12 to 17, if you want to read it. In that passage, God said he was going to have David be his king and that he was going to raise up a son for David to sit on his throne after him. And that son was the second king following David. His name was Solomon. He did sit on David's throne for 40 years. God fulfilled his promise. But then God also said in that same passage, I'm going to have your son sit on your throne and rule over your kingdom forever and ever. That didn't happen with Solomon that didn't happen with any of David's merely human sons to follow. But that was pointing ahead to Jesus Christ when he would come into this world some 
800 years after Isaiah wrote and some thousand or so years after God made that promise to David. There's a text in the Psalms that David wrote, Psalm 80, or somebody wrote it anyway, I don't think it was David, but Psalm 89 verse 3, where God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen, I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. That couldn't be fulfilled in any one of David's sons like Solomon or grandsons or great, 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 whatever grandsons. It would only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the God-man who was descended from David. So the Davidic covenant points to Jesus Christ. Next, there in verses 3 to 5, Jesus Christ is the subject of the statements in verses 4 and 5. He's the subject of the statements in verses 4 and 5. Let's look at verse 4. Indeed, the Lord says, God says, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Now that was true of David, but that's also true of the greater David, the greatest king that Israel would ever have, Jesus Christ the Lord. He's called a witness to the people here. He's called a leader and commander for the people. You will remember that when Jesus stood before Pilate, the night before he was put to death on the cross, he was going back and forth with Pilate. We could say some of their talk was banter. Uh, some of it was quite serious talk, though. And as they were speaking, one of the things Jesus said to Pilate was, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Well, that's being foretold in this passage 800 years before Jesus walked on this earth. He was a witness to the people. That's what God gave him for, to be a witness to the truth, to the people of God. And then it says in the last part of the verse, that he would be a leader and commander of the people. David was, Jesus Christ was. We're told in Hebrews 2.10 that he is our leader, the leader of God's people. He is the captain of our salvation. He's a leader and commander. The Revelation 19 verse 16 says this about Jesus Christ. He is king of kings and Lord of of lords. He is leader and commander of the peoples. The Father gives his Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And he is that, a witness, a leader, and a commander. But then also in verse 5, notice what it says about him. It says, Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. God, through the prophet, is speaking to the nation of Israel, but it's also speaking to the Messiah there in these words. And this is true of Jesus. God glorified him, and the nations, when God glorified him, would come running to him. Let's turn to a New Testament passage and notice that. It's John 12 beginning at verse 23. John 12 and verse 23. We won't read all the verses going down to verse 33, but let me just pick out a few for the sake of time here. This is the day before Jesus was going to be put to death. And... We read here Jesus saying in verse 23, But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. If you know John's gospel, you know there were a number of points at which earlier on he was saying, My time has not yet come. Now he's saying, My hour has come. What hour? The hour that the Son of Man, that's Jesus himself, should be glorified. What a strange way to be glorified. He meant... It's my time to die, to be hung on the cross. So look at verses 27 and 28 as well. Now, he says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Because it means my facing the horrible 
cruel death on the cross? No. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So as he went through the valley of the shadow of death and had the wrath of God poured out on him as he hung on the cross, this was the way he would be glorified. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And then notice verses 31 to 33. Jesus says, now this is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The ruler of this world, by that he meant the devil. He will be cast out. And then he says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. So the word lifted up is the same as the word exalted. So it's kind of a play on words. I'll be lifted up on the cross to be dropped into the hole in the ground and to hang there for hours and die. But if I am lifted up, exalted, I will draw all peoples to myself. So as it says, surely he shall call a nation you do not know, Isaiah 55, 5, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. He would be exalted in his death. It would be the lowest point of his humiliation. It would also be the beginning of his exaltation. And when he is exalted, it would be like a magnet drawing people from every nation to himself through the gospel. He's the subject of these statements in Isaiah 55. Jesus Christ is. Just the second thing to notice, that he's the main person in this passage. It's not just the focus of verses 3 through 5. It's also the context. Uh, it's, I'm sorry, it's also verse, uh, the context of... Um, this whole section of Isaiah, starting back in Isaiah 53. It's one of the most famous chapters of the Old Testament. It's probably the chapter of the Old Testament that most clearly and explicitly speaks about Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, his suffering and dying in the place of sinners. It tells us about Christ's saving Work And that leads into chapter 54 and chapter 55. And now what we're going to do is look at those chapters a little bit under this next heading of the main thing in the passage. We've seen the main person. It's Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, the main thing in this passage. What is the main thing? The main thing the passage speaks about is salvation in Jesus Christ. As it says in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, his name is the one name under heaven by which sinners must be saved. And meaning there's no other name under heaven by which anybody can ever be saved from his sins and from hell and from death. So the main thing in the passage then is salvation in Christ. And we're going to notice this just following the flow of those three chapters I mentioned. Chapter 53, 54, and 55. Let me try to do this briefly. First of all, let's notice chapter 53, which tells us about Christ's saving work. Let me just read the first several verses of the chapter. Isaiah says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. When the Son of God came into this world, you would think that he would be rich, that he would be a king, he might live in a palace, he would be treated like a king. None of those things was true. You would think that at least, like in a Renaissance painting, he might have a halo over his head so people could figure it out. He had none of it. He was not beautiful. He was not desirable. Verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. 
He was despised and we did not esteem him. He had popularity for a while. Ultimately, the multitudes turned against him. They said, crucify him. He was crucified on a Roman cross. And even his closest friends and followers, the apostles, ran away from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And then verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Where did he ever bear people's griefs and carry their sorrows? On the cross. There he was smitten, not just by Jewish leaders or Roman soldiers, but by God himself smitten by God and afflicted. But, Isaiah says, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities, our sins. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. In other words, he was punished for our sins and the result of his being punished for our sins is that we could have peace with God. And by his stripes, the stripes of blood in his back when he was whipped, we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the wickedness, the godlessness, the sins of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. There's an even more explicit historical record of what Isaiah wrote about 800 years before Jesus came in each of the four Gospels. This is Jesus Christ, and this is speaking about Christ's saving work. Notice the blessings of salvation mentioned there in, in verse 5 once again. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. He's punished, we get peace. By his stripes we are healed. He's whipped, we are healed. Those are the blessings of salvation. Peace, healing of every spiritual woe and malady. And then the end of verse 11 as well. By his right knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Because of what he did, sinners are justified. Our sins, the Bible says, are removed from God's people as far away from us as the east is from the west. And our iniquities are taken away. But then we see a similar thing, that this is about salvation in Christ in chapter 54. Again, it's addressing, as is chapter 53 in all of this section of Isaiah, the nation of Israel. And Isaiah says, starting at the beginning of verse 54, of chapter 54, I should say, chapter 54. He's saying that there are going to be blessings upon this whole nation because of Christ. Sing, O barren woman, you who have not born, childless woman. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not travailed with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your habitations. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, nor be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame." For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. 
Isaiah was speaking to a nation that was headed toward judgment. Eventually, they would be spit out of their land. They would be sent far away. They would suffer shame, reproach. They would be despised. And only after many years would they come back to their land. And they would still be despised. And they would still be small. But eventually, after the coming of Christ and the death of Christ, and he was exalted on the cross, he did draw all people to himself beginning with the preaching of the apostles as they went to all the nations of the earth and preached the gospel. And this text has been fulfilled. The real Israel, believers in Jesus Christ, have come from every nation. And they're all throughout the earth, way far away from Israel, like this. We're not here from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, but a pretty good number just sitting here tonight worshiping Jesus Christ. This text has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled. There would be resultant blessing from what we read in Isaiah 53 on all the nation and the expansion of the nation. The tent curtains have been stretched out and the cords of the tent have been lengthened and the stakes strengthened. This is about Christ's saving work. And then likewise, as we come to verse 55, it doesn't put it in national and corporate terms anymore in Isaiah 55. Here, it's a call to individual sinners. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. In other words, it's the big picture in chapter 53 and 54 and now it gets personal. If you were alive at the time of Jesus, you could have gone with the crowds and watched Jesus heal people. And you could have gone with the crowds one day at the end of Jesus' time on this earth and see him get crucified. And you could observe him with the crowds and see what the crowds saw and talk with the crowds about what you think was going on, etc. And have a nice time maybe and then get back to your day-to-day living. But the point when we come to Isaiah 55 is this. Each individual needs to come to Jesus Christ. Each individual needs to come to him. And each individual is called to come to him. Each individual born into this world needs to have dealings with Jesus Christ. We heard this morning about one of the gospel pictures of that in John chapter 3. Jesus was stirring up a lot of things in Israel during the days of his public ministry. And all the Jews were talking about him. And especially the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes. They were talking about Jesus. And one of the Pharisees was bold enough to actually come and talk to Jesus at night. But he came, Nicodemus. And he spoke with Jesus. And we heard this morning how... He had dealings with Jesus, and Jesus had dealings with him, and he told him, you need to be born again, Nicodemus. Even if you're clueless about what I'm talking about, you need to listen, and you need to do what I'm saying. There's a sense in which Isaiah 55 is like an Old Testament version of another passage we looked at today, Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, where Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This passage is like that. God is calling through Isaiah to every sinner out there. Ho, everyone who thirsts. So we see in this passage the main person, Jesus Christ, the main thing, salvation in Christ, and now we come to the third thing, the main purpose of the passage. And the main purpose of this passage, if you haven't figured it out by hearing it read, is to urge and persuade sinners to be saved through Jesus Christ. That's the main purpose of the passage. 
So there are several things for us to observe in these first three verses in the passage, which we really didn't look at much yet. And I'll do it under two main headings. And the first heading is this, that the Lord, God, who is speaking in this passage as the same one who's speaking in all of Scripture, the Lord invites sinners. That's verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's similar to the statement that Jesus made in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 23, in a parable that he told. Some people call it the parable of the great Supper, And here are Jesus' words at this point in that parable. He said, Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. In other words, make them come in. Compel them to come in. That's what this passage is like here. The Lord is inviting sinners to come to him in verse 1. And let's notice three things about this invitation then. First, let's notice that the invitation is born of compassion. It's not just a reprimand of people who aren't coming to God. It's not just a command that everybody must come to God, though that's true about the gospel calls we see in the Bible. But in this particular one, it's especially a plea and that's why I say the invitation here is born of compassion. And I say that first because there's pity in this statement here, in this call to sinners to come to God. God knows that there is a need, like I mentioned starting out. Someone, let's say, for instance, who has begun to think about suicide. Not everybody who thinks about it commits it. But there's a lot of people who think about it in this world who never commit it. Maybe it's a flitting thought. Maybe it comes to the point of an intention at some time. There's a lot of people like that in the world. And the point is, God knows that. And he's making a plea to such people. Everyone who thirsts. There's pity. He knows that people thirst. Verse 2, he knows they're hungry. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. There are people in the world, God understands, who are in search of satisfaction. And they're not finding it. We've had people over at our house on afternoons this week. They've all been in search of satisfaction. And thank, thankfully, thanks to God and to my wife, they've found it at our table. But the point is, we're talking about something far deeper than just hunger for food here. It's figurative language. God knows that there are people who are hungering and thirsting in this world, and their satisfaction, they never find it. And it's characterized in the middle of verse, um, 55, verse 1 of chapter 55 as having poverty as well. You who have no money, come buy and eat. In other words, you may not have money. Come anyway, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, you have no money, come anyway. What is that picturing? It's picturing the absolute inability of a sinner to do anything to satisfy his hunger and his thirst. And that's a true picture. That's a true picture of every person as he's born into this world, a sinner. It's true pictures of every sinner, as the scripture says. They're poor in spirit. Some know it. Those are the ones whose eyes God's open, God opens. But many don't even know that they're poor in spirit, though they feel the pangs of hunger. Turn with me back to Psalm 107 for a moment. Psalm 107. A psalm that has many great pictures of sinners who are suffering and hungering and thirsting. Let me just read a couple of 
parts of it. Verses 4 through 9 first. This is just take this as a description of sinners, a picture of what they're like inwardly. They're like people wandering in the wilderness in a desolate way. Verse 4. And then verse 5, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for habitation. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Maybe the first two verses I read describe you. You're wandering, you're in a wilderness, you can't find any place, you say, this is home. There's peace here, there's joy, there's delight. Your soul is hungry and thirsty, it faints in you. This is a picture of someone coming to faith in Christ. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And you have a similar thing in verses 10 and following. Those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in afflictions and irons because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. In other words, he made their pain worse. They fell down and there was none to help. Sometimes God makes your life worse and more miserable. Why? For this reason. That you might cry out to him. Verse 13. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. It's a different figure of speech from what we have in Isaiah 55, but it's the same picture of a sinner lost in his sins. He's not only hungry and thirsty, he's bound by the chains of his own sins. And it's a mercy of God if those chains get to feel heavier. You know what God is doing? He's saying, just look to me. Just ask me. And I will snap the chains. That's what he's saying. God calls sinners out of compassion. He tells us in pictures like this in Psalm 107, the way it really is with every single sinner who hasn't turned to Jesus Christ in his life. Whether they presently feel that or not. That's the way it is. You could be a naturally strong person, as we say, not a weak person. You're tough. You're bold. You're confident. You're strong. Some people pretend to be all those things. It's how they get by, even though they know they're not that. Other people really are. I mean, that's the way they feel. That's the way they act. That's the way their life goes. But even if you are strong like that, realize something. You are not strong before God. You'll one day face him in the judgment. You'll find out what an absolute weakling you are. You're nothing to him in terms of strength. He could bring you to a Psalm 107 moment like that, that you're weighed down under your chains. And if you don't ever come to one of those moments in this life and repent and believe in Jesus Christ, in the day of judgment, you will melt before God. However bold you are, whenever you've faced any person or challenge in this life, you will melt when Jesus Christ just looks at you in the day of judgment. And so, he pities you. Because you are in a poor condition. Every sinner is. You don't have what you want. You don't have what you really need. Even if you don't know it, you don't have security. 
you don't have peace, you don't have real love, you don't have stability in your life, in your world, you certainly don't have a good conscience if you're not a Christian, you don't have joy, especially the kind of joy the Bible says Christians have joy unspeakable, you don't have it. You don't have true love for others. If you're honest, everything you do to be good to other people is for what you'll get, even if it's just a good reputation. You don't have true love for God. We're looking at God's invitation to sinners. The first point we're looking at is it comes from a heart of compassion, meaning first, there's pity there in God's heart towards sinners. Second, there's love. It's, a, it's an invitation to sinners that comes from a heart of compassion. There's pity and there's love. Love means you desire the greatest good for people. That's what God's love is like. He doesn't just want you to be wealthy. He doesn't just want you to have a job you enjoy. He doesn't want you to have a happy marriage and kids all around you and then grandkids and all that and you live happily ever after. That's, that's pittance, a pittance compared to what God wants for you. He wants you to have the greatest good, the way it says in Isaiah 55, verse 1. He wants you to have wine and milk. Come by wine and milk, he says. Meaning things that will really give you refreshment. And he wants you to have water to satisfy your thirst, the things you really need to live that will nourish you, that will give you true enjoyment, that will be, give you an abundance and give you satisfaction. And all these things, as I said, they represent spiritual blessings, meaning the true blessings of this world, the greatest blessings that there are in this world, real blessings, that's what God wants. And he's calling you to come and take them from him. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with your maker, the God of heaven, union and communion with God, to be his friend, the love of God is what he's saying. He wants you to come and take. The peace of God, which passes all understanding. The gift of the Holy Spirit, so that you will have the ability to obey God's commandments, which seems so impossible for you to ever think about obeying right now. He will give you love to other people. He will make your heart large and he'll make it beat with love for people, even people that are hard to love. He'll help you to deny yourself. The Spirit of God will. And he'll give you the hope of heaven. Amen. And you will not fear death. Amen. The invitation is born of compassion. Second, the invitation is characterized by urgency. Look at verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. It starts out with that word, ho, it's getting your attention. Ho! It's not quite like yo, but ho. So, for instance, let's say after the sermon, people are milling, and one of the deacons runs up to me and he says, there's a fire in the building. Well, I would be running back up to this pulpit and standing here and waving my arms and banging and yelling. And I'd say, everyone, listen to me. In other words, I'd be saying, ho! And this is what God is saying to insensitive sinners. Getting your attention. And then beyond ho, he's saying, listen carefully. Listen carefully. Verse 2, the middle of the verse. Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. If I continue the same in illustration. When I got up here, I'd have learned from the deacon by this time. What part of the building is the fire in? Which way do I need to tell them? If the fire's out there, I'd say, don't go out those doors. Go out that door and go down that stairway and out the door on the left. That's what I'd be saying. I'd be giving you directions. It's kind of like what Jesus said when he said to his apostles one time in Luke chapter 9. Listen to these words I'm telling you. He said it this way. Let these words sink down into your Ears. This is what God is saying here in this passage to sinners. It's the invitation is characterized by urgency. Listen, 
And then third, the invitation is entirely gracious. We see it in verse 1 again. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's entirely gracious. I might throw a party at any given time, invite a lot of people to my house, but it's not like this. It wouldn't be entirely gracious like this. You come over to my house and you might say, boy, I would really benefit from being in your house, Pastor Chansky, talking to you, fellowshipping with you, etc. My point is, I would equally benefit from your company. Probably part of the reason I would invite you, I'll, I'll admit it. And if you came to my house, I invited you for dinner and you brought gifts like a hostess gift for my wife, I would accept it. My wife would accept it. If you brought some food to help with a meal, we'd accept it. That's what it would be like if you come to my house. I wouldn't come and pick you up and bring you to my party. Well, I might if you asked. But my point is, this party here that God is calling sinners to, it's a complete giveaway. Everything about it. It's a radical thing. It doesn't go with the conventional wisdom. You invite people who will invite you back. That's the conventional wisdom in this world. It's contrary to the system of our world that is this. You get something and you pay for something. You don't get something for nothing. Here, in what God is saying, you're not only paying nothing, you're getting the greatest thing you could possibly ever get. That's the idea. And there's a fixed price for it. Nothing. And the price will never be changed. Ah, I missed Cyber Monday. No problem. There will be no bargaining and the price will never go up. It's what Paul wrote about in Titus 3. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. The Lord invites sinners. The second thing to notice here is this. I said two headings. Here's the second one. The Lord reasons with and persuades sinners to come. This is especially in verse 2, especially the first part of the verse. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. He begins with a provocative question. Why are you doing what you're doing? Here's this great spread. You could come. You could take it. You could put it to your mouth. You could bite it. You could chew it. You could swallow it. No one will stop you. No one will kick you out. You're not doing it. Why? That's the question. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? and your wages for what does not satisfy? It's a provocative question. God wants to provoke you, especially if you're a sinner sitting here tonight, an unbeliever. He wants to provoke you to think. I want to provoke you to think in my last minutes here. What are you doing if you're not a Christian? What are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? A hungry person will not be satisfied with anything but bread, food. So imagine someone who's hiking, and he gets lost while he's hiking, and he's lost for a long time, and he's run out of food, and he's starving, and it's been a couple days, and now it's evening, and he sees a light, and he walks in that direction, and it's a house. And it doesn't look like anybody's home. He knocks on the door. He rings the doorbell. He yells. Nobody's there. He's hungry. 
he breaks in. He goes into the house. He looks all through the house. He ransacks the house. He looks everywhere but in the fridge or in the pantry. You say, that's absurd. This is what I'm saying. If you are a sinner sitting here tonight, you're not a Christian. You don't love Jesus Christ. You don't believe in Jesus Christ. You haven't repented of your sin. Uh, you, you think, quite frankly, all these people on a midweek mid night coming and sitting in a building like this and singing old songs and reading ancient literature and then talking about it are really kind of foolish people. But I say to you, what are you doing? Why are you looking everywhere to satisfy whatever hunger is in your gut everywhere but where the real food is? Especially when someone like me right now is holding open the pantry door and saying, here it is! Take it! If you're not a Christian, at some level, some level, I'm not saying you have to admit it. I'm not saying if you talk with me later, you have to admit it. At some level, you know that you are not satisfied. I know there's the phenomenon that Job wrote about. He said, you know, there's ungodly people. Here I am suffering, a godly man. There's ungodly people who are rich. Their families are healthy. They're going to die happy. And here I am scraping my sores off my arms and my legs in misery. I know there's that phenomenon in the world. I know that Peter said in 1 Peter 4 that people in this world are not looking at you as a Christian and thinking, boy, I wish I was like him or her. They're looking at you and thinking, why don't they do what we do? I get that. But I'm saying... Why are you doing what you're doing? I'm not talking about people who are completely careless. I'm not talking about people whose consciences might be completely silent or numb. I'm talking to someone like you who came to church on a Wednesday night, Tuesday, Tuesday night, for whatever reason, who knows there is a God, who knows there is a judgment, who knows there is a heaven and that there is a hell. I repeat, you know you're not satisfied. But those who have eaten this food I'm talking about that God offers here, that God urges people to take, people who have eaten that food are satisfied. Amen. All of us are. Yes, amen. We are done looking for something to satisfy us. Interview anybody here who's a Christian on their way out, if you would like, and see if what I'm saying is so. Another passage that was preached this morning, at least in part, was in John 4 about Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And Jesus spoke to this woman, we're told in John chapter 4, and he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then it says, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw water again. And this woman believed in Jesus that day. And she knew that satisfaction that I was talking about. And if you do that, as I said, if you were to, if you were to ask us, you'd find that we all would say that what that woman found on that day is exactly what we have found. Water that has satisfied our thirst. And another thing you would find is this. It's that same satisfaction that keeps us coming back here. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Amen. We sing about it in one of our hymns. We taste thee, that's Jesus Christ, O thou living bread, 
and we long to feast upon thee still. In other words, we ate and we're satisfied, but we're so satisfied we want to keep eating. And likewise with drinking, we drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. I'm just going to close tonight with this sincere plea that's probably already been read to you five times. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, God says, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Come to Jesus Christ and live. Seek him tonight. And I'm going to let the congregation join their voices with mine in singing a hymn as we conclude tonight. Hymn number... 724 in the blue hymnal. 724. Stand together and sing, brother. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ, the one Savior of sinners. 
Thank you that you have opened the hearts and the souls of so many of us and filled them and satisfied them through Jesus Christ and all the riches that he has purchased for us so that we need not pay a penny for them. Open the eyes of sinners here tonight that they would see the same wonderful bargain offered by heaven and that they would come this night and taste and eat for the saving of their souls. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.